Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea. The one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good. And we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell. The dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear. The one that describes purgatory. Where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet, and about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book, Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you can listen to all of Revisionist History ad-free by subscribing to Pushkin+. Plus. Pushkin. Hey, Lost Tales listeners, it's Dana. I wanted to let you know that you can hear the entire new season of Lost Tales ad-free, along with other great binge listens, by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. Find Pushkin Plus on the Lost Tales show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm slash plus. The Gidget movie came out in the spring of 1959. Gidget is the story of a young blonde teenage gal who spends a fabulous summer at Malibu Beach with the surfboarders. Of course, you know Gidget was a very big bestseller, and they made it into a tremendous motion picture in color and in cinemascope. It starred a 16-year-old Sandra D as Gidget. Hi, I'm Sandra D. It's such fun living in California and being able to pick fresh flowers for my hair. Sandra Dee was tiny and blonde, the Hollywood version of the all-American girl. In the movie, Gidget's real name was Frances Lawrence, not Kathy Conner, and she had a bland American mom and dad right out of a 50s sitcom. But the real Gidget had a family that was much more layered. They were European and Jewish, and for what it's worth, Kathy had dark hair. In the early 30s, Kathy's father, Frederick Kohner, had been a screenwriter in Berlin. His first film premiered just as Hitler was declaring a boycott on Jewish businesses. Here's Kathy. 
they took his name off the screen credit for a movie that did not show very long um, by uh, Stefan Zweig, uh, The Burning Secret. And he, he had a pen name because when he died, we, my, we looked, you know, they came across a name called Alex Bang. So he had a pseudonym. Was that to disguise his guess, Jewish yeah, identity? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that was a difficult period in the time. Gidget's dad, Frederick, made his way to Los Angeles and continued writing movies. In 1939, he was nominated for an Academy Award. Two years later, Kathy was born. The family lived in L.A. till the mid-50s, when Frederick took a job in Berlin. When they got back, Kathy didn't know where she fit in. We'd lived in Berlin for a year and a half uh, when I was 13 and 14. And I came home and I really, you know, I'd missed out on the junior high school graduation and sticking with the girls. And so when I came back, I was a little bit, where's my place? And then the folks, are, you know, you got to come to Malibu with us. You know, you're not going to go to a movie theater on a Saturday afternoon to the Bruin Theater in Westwood Village. You know, you're going to come. So it was sort of like, okay, but I'm going to learn how to, I'm going to do this. Frederick saw potential in Kathy's stories of the Malibu surf scene right away. I don't really know what he was working on, but he hit on when he decided, I'm going to take what Kathy's telling me, I'm going to write a book. And so he wrote that book in three weeks. He wrote Gidget in three weeks. Kathy's uncle, Frederick's older brother, Paul Koner, was a famous Hollywood agent. So Frederick took the manuscript to him to see what he thought of it. And I remember Uncle Paul like, well, I, I, what is this? You know, maybe this would be a good story for a Reader's Digest. He, you know, it was so different. The, the, even though Malibu was 20 minutes from the house, it was a world away. It was a world apart. A teenage love story set among the surfing beatniks of Malibu didn't appeal to Uncle Paul. He encouraged Frederick to shop it around. I remember when a phone call came to my dad. It was around dinner time, and my dad got off the phone, and he said, this agent in, at William Morris just thinks, he said, Mr. Conner, you have hit the jackpot. Soon, Hollywood scouts would show up in Malibu looking for locations to film beach movies and actual bona fide surfers to do the stunts. Mickey Dora would be right there, auditioning for roles and getting paid handsomely. Friends of his told me it was actually the only honest money he made in his whole life, and he was still getting residual checks into his old age. But he also claimed to hate Hollywood and everyone who worked in the business or had a connection to it. About his work on the Gidget movie, he said, quote, My only regret is that I did not torch Gidget's palm frond love shack with that phony fafuni and all the rest of the cast and crew inside. What a glorious emu oven it would have made. We could have had a kama'aina luau with Hollywood long pig as the main course, unquote. It's pretty gross, especially when you consider Kathy was from a family of Eastern European immigrants who helped create the film industry in Hollywood. And Mickey Dora, well, he was the son of an Eastern European immigrant who came to Hollywood to make it. The two families, the Koners and the Doras, had both escaped the rise of fascism in Europe for a better life in California. They shared roots, 
And as I discovered, they shared a specific history in Los Angeles at the dawn of Hollywood. I'm Dana Goodyear, and this is Lost Hills. Episode 4, Gidget Goes to Hollywood, Part 2. You can't tell the story of Hollywood without the story of the Koner family, especially Gidget's uncle, Paul Koner, her father Frederick's older brother. He was a producer-turned-agent who helped define the golden age of Hollywood. This is Gidget's cousin, Paul's son. He's a writer, director, and producer. Uh, I'm Pancho Corner. I was born here in Los Angeles 84 years ago. <laughs> Paul Corner, Pancho's father, had first come to Los Angeles in the 1920s to work for Carl Lemley, the founder of Universal Studios. My dad was the eldest of three brothers from Czechoslovakia, a small town in Bohemia, which was German-speaking Czechoslovakia. After Paul, there was Frederick, Gidget's father. Their youngest brother was Walter. My grandfather, Julius Koner, in Teplitz, he had a cinema theater, and he also published a, a monthly film journal magazine. When Paul was 18, Julius asked him to do an interview with Carl Lemley, who was visiting the area. And Lemley took a liking to him and uh, hired him to come to America. Your Kona grandfather had a nickname that was, is it Kino Kona or Kino Kona? Kino is a movie theater. People were nicknamed by what their profession was. My father here was nicknamed Phoner Koner because he was always on the phone. <laughs> In Los Angeles, Paul met the Mexican actress, Lupita Tobar. My mother was Mexican. She was born in Oaxaca in the southern part of the state. Outdoor plumbing, dirt floors. The eldest of nine children. Lupita was discovered in Mexico by an American director, Robert Flaherty, the inventor of the feature-length documentary film. Lupita was given a contract at Fox Studios in Hollywood and became a silent movie star. But soon, the silent era was over. And that was problematic for a Spanish-speaking actress and they weren't going to renew her contract. But the uh, people at Fox sent her over to Universal, where they were dubbing pictures into Spanish, and that's where she met my father. And it was sort of love at first sight. And, uh, she did three nights dubbing and didn't know what to do and was going to go back to Mexico. But first she wisely went back to say goodbye to that nice man, Paul Corner, who said, give me 24 hours. And he went to Lemley and said, we're wasting half the studio here. At 6 o'clock, we turn off the lights till 6 in the morning. We should bring in another crew, Spanish-speaking actors, and shoot the same film in Spanish. It'll cost peanuts because we use all the same everything. And Lemley said, fantastic, 
do it? And my father said, there's an actress here thinking of going back to Mexico. And Lemley said, well, sign her to a year's contract right away. One of the first big talkies at Universal was a horror film that became iconic. I am Dracula. During the day, they shot Bela Lugosi. At night, they filmed the Spanish version of Dracula with Pancho's mother, Lupita, playing the female lead. Paul supervised the film. And two years later, they got married in Czechoslovakia. Paul and his new bride decided to stay in Europe and make films. They moved to Berlin, where the political situation was taking a dark turn. In the early 30s, when Paul and Lupita were living there, Hitler was consolidating power, ultimately declaring himself Führer of the German Reich in 1934. My mother was Catholic and my father was Jewish, but he had an American passport, so he was fairly safe. But uh, they were not allowed to live together, a Gentile and a Jew. So they had to move constantly. Um, I have a letter from Lemley authorizing the accounting department to pay my father a bonus for living in Berlin in hazardous times, as they said. Danger pay. Yes. They used to uh, travel to Paris and to London for the opening of the films they were making. Because of their work and Paul's American passport, Paul and Lupita could travel freely. So they became smugglers, helping friends and family move money to the West. My mother describes how she used to carry jewelry in jars of cold cream or in her knitting, in a roll of knitting, she would hide cash and valuables to smuggle this stuff out for friends. It seemed to work until one day, Paul and Lupita were stopped at the German-Czech border. They were taken off the train and were about to be strip-searched. Paul ran back on the train saying he had forgotten his suitcase and got rid of a wad of cash he was carrying. So he threw that wad of cash under an empty seat somewhere looked like it was going to be a problem, except my father loved to be photographed with personalities, with important people. And in his briefcase, he had a uh, photograph of himself with the Reichsmarschall, the air minister, shaking hands. And when they saw that, he said, ah, why didn't you tell us? And he said, we can call him at his home if you'd like, he'll vouch for me. They said, no, it's all right. So they let them go. But clearly, Someone had reported them for smuggling. It wasn't safe to go back to Berlin. They had to escape. So through Switzerland, they went to Paris for six months. The news was worse and worse from what they heard from refugees in Paris. And so they finally uh, took a boat and came back to America. After Paul and Lupita returned to Los Angeles in 1935, Paul changed course and became a talent agent. It was a very successful agent, uh, what they called a boutique agency. It didn't have a lot of clients. It was one big family. All of these clients were over at the house all the time. Sundays, dinner parties, these are, it was a family affair. His clients were some of the biggest movie stars of the time. John Huston, Henry Fonda, Rita Hayworth, Lana Turner. My sister and I used to put on puppet shows for Lana's daughter's birthday. But Paul specialized in the European emigres, 
Billy Wilder, Marlena Dietrich, Ingmar Bergman. Any with an accent was a client of the Kohner Agency. They understood each other. They were a tight-knit group. The late 30s brought a flood of Europeans into Hollywood, many of them refugees from Nazi oppression. They flocked to the Kohner Agency. And anyone who came to Hollywood would go straight to 9169 Sunset Boulevard because that was a European refuge. Uh, my father spoke their languages and got them jobs. The Kohner Agency became a salon for the emigre film community. His office on Sunset Boulevard is an art deco, small building with large offices. And there's an oval office in the oval en- entry room with couches. And that's where these Europeans, actors out of work, would hang out, would be. And then the afternoon, my father's right hand, his secretary, uh, also had grown up in Berlin, uh, there would be a coffee clutch. She would have pastries from poopies and coffee, and that was the meeting place for uh, many of these European uh, actors, writers, directors. They discussed the news from Europe endlessly, and it was always horrible. Through the snow, the legions of occupation march into Czechoslovakia. This rapid stroke, which has outraged all freedom-loving nations of the world, is carried out with military exactitude. In 1938, the Nazis took over the part of Czechoslovakia that included Teplitz, the Kohner's hometown. My grandmother, Helena, uh, didn't want to leave because they were still uncles and aunts. And until finally the situation became untenable, then the Nazis were in Teplitz and she made a phone call saying, get me out. Paul Kohner was exceptionally well-connected. One of his friends was the eldest son of President Franklin D. and Eleanor Roosevelt. With his help, they were able to get Helena out of Europe. The rest of the family perished, were sent to Terezin camp and other camps. Back in Los Angeles, the emigre film community realized that the situation was dire and the U.S. government was making it harder for refugees to immigrate. Paul and Frederick Kohner, along with Billy Wilder and Marlena Dietrich, decided they needed to do something to help their friends who were trapped in Europe. In order to get here, they had to have visas, they had to have proof of financial support that they wouldn't be a burden on the United States. So my father had to get affidavits, offers of work from the various studios, the various employers around town. And so financially, my father was part of the group that started the European Film Fund. The Kohner saved some 60 people, Jews from Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary. In L.A., the new refugees joined the tight-knit emigre community. And when they weren't hanging out at the Kohner Agency eating pastries, they were at the restaurant down the street. That's where some of the best and most authentic European food in Los Angeles was served and where the European movie stars and directors hung out, at Little Hungary, the restaurant owned by Mickey Dora's dad. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. 
If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea, the one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear. The one that describes the purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet, and about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book, Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you can listen to all of Revisionist History ad-free by subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Mickey Dora and Kathy Koner, Gidget, met on the beach in Malibu in 1956. But their families have been deeply intertwined for decades through Mickey's dad's restaurant, Little Hungry. Miklos Sr., with his young American wife and little Mickey, had emigrated to America in 1935. Little Hungry was a swanky place on Sunset Boulevard. The waiters wore bow ties and traditional Hungarian outfits, and a sign outside advertised gypsy music. But it was also cozy. You could get Transylvanian goulash with an apple strudel for dessert. For the many, many European emigres living and working in Hollywood at that time, Little Hungary was a reminder of home. That was absolutely true for Gidget's family, the Koners. Paul and Frederick, Gidget's uncle and her dad, were regulars. And when their youngest brother, Walter, arrived in Los Angeles, he started working there. He was a pianist, playing Viennese waltzes for the after-theater crowd. He'd later write that he played for, quote, $10 a week and all the goulash I could eat. Here's Cousin Pancho again. It was marvelous when I was growing up. What do you remember about it? remember my uncle playing the piano there, my Uncle Walter. Late one night in the spring of 1940, Walter was at Little Hungry. Miklos Dora, Mr. Dora to Walter, was there too. Miklos came and sat next to Walter at the piano and delivered terrible news. The Nazis, Miklos said, had invaded Holland. It was a solemn moment between boss and employee, two Europeans in grim solidarity. But to Walter, the news was excruciatingly personal. 
his childhood sweetheart, Hannah, who, like him, was Jewish, was stuck in Amsterdam. Later, their dramatic reunion would be the subject of an episode of This Is Your Life. This is your life, television's most talked about program. And now, meet our host, Ralph Edward. Hey, hello. How are you? On the show, which was wildly popular and ran for more than a decade, the host would surprise an unsuspecting member of the audience, filling the stage with the most important people in the subject's life. This is your life, Hannah Black Conner. Oh, no! Yes? <laughs> the program told an extraordinary story, how Hannah had defied the odds, enduring a series of concentration camps and escaping with her life. It was the first time the show was devoted to a survivor of the Holocaust. People from different parts of Hannah's wartime odyssey, people she had not seen in years and she thought she'd never see again, appeared on stage for tearful reunions. Hannah and Walter had met in Teplitz when they were young, but when the war broke out in Europe, they were separated. They were sweethearts in high school, and then Walter came to America, and Hannah, his sweetheart, his girlfriend, he was going to arrange, try to arrange a visa for her to come, but uh, that was delayed. Hannah fled home for the relative safety of Prague, when Prague became too dangerous, she went to Amsterdam. And she worked as a, uh, first as a housekeeper, and she, the war started. And she worked as a typist in the, the German Nazi offices, and she had access to all the lists of who they were going to round up. Once the Nazis invaded Holland, it became basically impossible for Hannah to get a visa to come to the United States. Then Hannah sent a letter that broke Walter's heart. She had fallen in love with someone else. She had a suitor. Uh, Carl was his name. And uh, she hadn't heard from Walter in a long time, and her chances of getting a visa were slim to none. It was a five-year waiting list. And then I think the American embassy there in Amsterdam was bombed or blew up and all the paper was gone. So she and Carl got married. They were rounded up and taken to a camp and released several times. Eventually, they were sent to Auschwitz. Carl died there. Hannah, miraculously, did not. Her brother, who was a medical student, also was in the camps, and they actually saw each other through a fence once. Meanwhile, Walter had left his job playing piano for Mr. Dora. He'd been drafted into the U.S. Army. Walter was in Europe, but he had no idea where Hannah was, or if she was alive. Then, one day, not long after the war was over, Walter got a letter. It was addressed simply to Walter Koner, Sunset Boulevard. The letter had made it to his brother's talent agency, and they had sent it to Walter, who was then in Luxembourg. The letter was from two American soldiers. They'd liberated a concentration camp and had found Hannah alive. So he borrowed a jeep and was racing from camp to camp, 
trying to find her. At one point, he, I demolished the Jeep, commandeered another vehicle. He got to Prague, and by chance in the streets of Prague, he found Friedel, Hannah's brother, and told him that his sister was alive, but they didn't know where. And so they thought, well, maybe she went back to Amsterdam. So uh, Walter went to Amsterdam. He knew the house where she had worked as a maid and rang the doorbell, and there she was. Hannah and Walter married in the fall of 1945. They decided to return to Los Angeles, where Walter went back to playing piano at Mr. Dora's restaurant, which he had renamed Little Gypsy. Hungary had joined the Axis during the war, and Miklos didn't want to be associated with the Nazis. Gidget's family knew firsthand the evils of anti-Semitism. They knew what a swastika meant. A swastika meant, you don't belong here. It meant, you're not safe. It meant, leave. All this made what happened at Malibu, what Kathy's so-called friends did, even uglier and more personal really unforgivable. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea, the one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good and we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear, the one that describes purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet, and about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book Blink can't wait to share it all with you. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you can listen to all of Revisionist History ad-free by subscribing to Pushkin Plus. When Kathy Koner returned to Malibu after college, the scene on the beach was unrecognizable. And something else had changed. Kathy wasn't surfing anymore. She'd quit. So when I came home in 1960, I don't even remember having my own surfboard anymore. But I do remember it being pretty crowded. So the movie came out in 1959. And that, you know, Gidget the movie, I think, is the start of the billion-dollar surf industry. I mean, you know, like, oh, my gosh, I want to go to Malibu. I want to surf. I want to meet Moondoggy, pretty dramatic change, actually. And the fellows that I had surfed with, they were older than me always, so that when I came home, they had sort of dispersed. They were in the military. Uh, Maybe they went away to college. So it wasn't kind of the same crew, the same grouping of surfers that I had known in 56, 57, and 58, 59. But that's not really the whole story. The vibe at Malibu had turned toxic 
long before all those teeny boppers came looking for their moon doggy, when Kathy was still surfing at Malibu. It would be whitewashed out of the movie and the TV show. The Gidget character, played by Sandra Dee, never had to deal with it. Here's what happened. The second summer, Kathy Koner, the real Gidget, surfed at Malibu, the summer of 1957, when her father's novel was published and news was already out that it would soon be a feature film, a symbol appeared on the side of Tubestake's shack. It was a swastika. Kathy told me about this reluctantly, and she got really uncomfortable when I asked her about another swastika I'd heard about. It's an incident Kathy doesn't like to discuss, because this time, it was drawn in the gravel of the driveway at her family's home. This is something Kathy puts in the category of prank, like disconnecting the distributor on her car. She never found out who did it, but she refused to let it get to her. And had there been um, a swastika on the driveway or no swastika on the driveway, we just kind of like, it was not a big, we kind of didn't want to deal with something like that. So we just kind of like, who cares? You know, you want to throw my board over the fence? So I had a, a drive. I mean, I had a drive to want to learn how to surf, to prove it to, you know, maybe to myself, but to the the, the guys that I could be just one. I could surf too. I'm going to surf. Talking to me, she didn't want to dwell on swastikas. It's the Gidget in me, she explained. She got over it. She learned to surf. Isn't that the story? At Duke's restaurant, it's literally Kathy's job to live in the past, to be that piece of living history, talking about Moondoggy and Tube Steak and the shack and the bitchin' summer of 1956. She loves it. Hemingway wrote that story, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place, which I loved because, you know, I kind of feel like the barefoot bar at Duke's is somewhat like a clean, well-lighted place. You go there, you can see the people, they're regulars, they're welcoming you. I can go around and get hugs. Uh, I got elevated to excellence. I have to thank the Duke's Corporation. Um, the, the title now is Ambassador of Aloha, which means that I greet the guests when the doors are open. I'm pretty much walking around. I'm allowed to uh, offer the free hula pie, which is our signature dessert. I sometimes help seat, but usually I just, I dress up, which is fun for me. And I walk around and I smile. And if somebody smiles back, I'm like, have you been here before? Where are you visiting from? Um, Oh, if I'll take them to a table where I'm happening to walk by photos that are of me on the wall, I'll say, that's me when I was a kid. 65 years after her dad's book came out, people still care about Gidget. This little girl said, I'm Anjali and Devin from Redondo Beach. I wrote a paper report about you in high school. We met you years ago here at Duke's. We love you. And when she came in last Sunday, the face was familiar, but she, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. It's a big hug. I met you several years ago. You were going to Hawaii. You remember me? Do you remember me? I don't remember my guess. I've been there 20 years, but there's that feeling of warmth that may generate to me or or just to the, uh, 
type of climate that Gidget represents to people today. And what is that? What is that climate? Well, that climate is, this was fun. This was clean, you know, not, it was, um, there weren't any, you know, I didn't, I wasn't aware of drugs. I wasn't aware of homelessness, you know, I mean, except Tubestake lived in the shack. So I thought, you have um, a path to, to follow. And that path in like the Judy Garland movie, you know, to the yellow brick road. So it was an innocent time. It's an innocent time. I think so, an innocent time. But what really endures about Gidget and why the story inspires women and girls today has to do with Kathy's incredible spirit. She was determined to surf, and she did it. She carved out a place for herself. The Gidget story may have an element of, you know... (laughs) It does have an element of um, uh, don't drop in on me. That's a surfic expression. So, you know, the book has an element of nobody's going to take this spirit away of the young girl and nobody's going to drop in on her. She's going to, you know, in the last line of the book, uh, maybe I'm just a woman in love with a surfboard. Kathy moved on from Malibu. And in college, I had discovered, you know, that, hey, I'm Jewish and I'm in Corvallis, Oregon. I better join the Hillel Club. Um, or I wanted to. I wanted some identification. And I came home. I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to join the Peace Corps. She met her husband, Marv. He's a retired professor of Yiddish. They have two sons and three granddaughters. From about 1960 to about 2001, when Gidget the Book was reissued, she pretty much disappeared from surf culture, while surfing was ballooning into the gigantic industry it is today. I asked Matt Warshaw, the surf historian, what Gidget meant for surfing. Kathy was the beginning of selling surfing to everybody. It was going from Hollywood across the country and then across the world, and you can literally see Gidget posters in all these different languages. So, I mean, it really went around the world. And it's just this call to come to the beach. Mickey, he had a different message. I think Mickey was the one who was going to originate surfers, you know, sort of telling everybody, the rest of the surf world and a lot of surfers as well, you know, stay away from this break. Uh, You know, that. Mickey was the one who brought sort of theater to surfing being a non-conformist, anti-establishment thing. Came in and trolled the people that didn't surf, or you railed against those who had sold out. So he invented that sort of rebellious version of the surfer. So it's also, you could say that Gidget's contribution was surfing is for everyone. Right. And Mickey's, in a way, was to try to, with as much flair as possible, push everyone away, you know. It was was him and a few other hardcore surfers against everyone. Mickey was just as angry and sort of performative against other surfers as he was against non-surfers. More so, in fact. You know, he... There was no... You know, it was a real purity test that you had to pass with him to be okay with. 
next time on Lost Tales. Mickey polices Malibu Beach. So now we've got like a rich kid in fancy sunglasses and fancy clothes and a fancy sports car passing bad checks and putting swastikas on his board and being a jerk to outsiders because they don't know how to surf and spewing all this vile stuff. I don't know. It just kind of started to turn, you know, green and gross inside and feel to me like there's something wrong with this. That's next in Episode 5, Surf Nazi. Lost Hills is written and reported by me, Dana Goodyear. It's created by me and Ben Adair and produced by Western Sound and Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can binge the entire season right now, ad-free. Find Pushkin Plus on the Lost Hills show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm slash plus. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them to pitch me their favorite idea, the one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it Development Hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear. The one that describes the purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet, and about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you can listen to all of Revisionist History ad-free, by subscribing to Pushkin Plus.